Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, Exposing the Mysteries of Executive Function. I'm your host, Sucheta Kamath. And every week we talk about interesting topics pertinent to personal self-management, helping children, adolescent, and even young adults to manage their goals, manage their mission. And most importantly, how do we all persist towards our goals through passage of time, uh, through arduous roadblocks that we encounter on everyday basis? Uh, one of the topics that has interested me deeply is sense of motivation. Um, uh, I am currently interviewing somebody for a job, and um, as part of their interview, they were saying, um, you know, uh, I'm highly motivated, I'm a self-starter, I get things done without anybody cajoling me, I, uh, you know, uh, and and some of the examples she gave, I thought were very, very funny. She said, I do not, you know, when I get out, get out of bed, I always make my bed. You know, if I say to somebody, I will call you t- on Thursday at nine o'clock, I am there to call them Thursday at nine o'clock. And uh, that was so fascinating and so inviting to hear somebody talk about uh, about their motivation and their ability to persist uh, and pursue the motivations that they have. Uh, that it um, it just reminded me all my 25 years of career, I have spent working with people who are highly unmotivated and people in their environment and their surroundings, such as parents, teachers, educators, colleagues are saying, this person needs to change. And somehow they, you can't find means to change them. So with that in mind, um, it was such an honor to um, uh, introduce you all to uh, a uh, you know world-renowned expert in motivation. And um, it's my personal pleasure to uh, introduce you to Eilat uh, Fishbach. Uh, she is the Jeffrey uh, Breckenridge Keller Professor of Behavioral Science and Marketing at the University of Chicago, Booth School of Business, um, and the author of Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. We'll be linking that book. And one of the interesting things about the title of the book uh, is is, uh, you have three words uh, that she has written on the title, which is forget, quit, undone. And then the parts of the words are canceled. I thought that was a very clever way to get people to think about uh, how to overcome the challenges we face every day as we think about managing our goals and motivation. Uh, She is the past president of the Society for uh, the Science of Motivation and the International Social Cognition Network. She's an expert on motivation and decision-making. Uh, Dr. Fishbach's groundbreaking research on human motivation has won the Society of Experimental Psychologists Best Dissertation Award and Career Trajectory Award and Fulbright Educational Foundation Award. She is a celebrated speaker, author. Her articles are uh, can be read many, many places, and she is highly influential in um, helping us think about our own understanding or lack thereof of motivation and our ways of improving our lives. So welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Wow, thank you, Sucheta. That was a wonderful introduction. I I feel like I should uh, quit now. Uh, I'm well. I'm very happy to be here today. Well, for starters, I thought I uh, often ask my guests about uh, their executive function. You know, executive function, as you know, entails adaptive flexibility, goal assessment, intentional focus, goal-directed persistence. Uh, In short, um, executive function is the CEO of the brain that governs or gives order to the rest of the brain to get things done and achieve what it wants. So for starters, I was wondering if you could share when you were younger as a child, maybe elementary, middle school, or high school, um, how were your own executive function skills? And uh, did you gain any insight about your own um, intentions about learning and uh, figuring out your ways at an early age or later on in your life? Uh, That's that's an interesting question. I don't think that I really paid any attention to um, 
as executive education uh, or uh, being a good student until college, really. Really? Like I, I, yeah, I was okay. Uh, but uh, first I grew up in, in Israel in a community that uh, is very different than where I am now. So uh, uh, it was a, a small uh, community, a, a socialist uh, community where we uh, we walked uh, the land and uh, had uh, farming and animals and, and so on. So uh, education was not that much of a, a center of anybody's life. Uh, and then um, I wasn't in particular uh, interested in uh, what was going on in, in school until I got to college. And, and you know, maybe I was uh, um, now interested enough because obviously like I did well enough to get into college and, and, and do things there, but it was really not uh, intrinsically uh, motivated until I started to study psychology. And then it was like, wow, that's exciting. And that's <laughs> like interesting. You really can't, you, you know, you, you, you read like these like handbooks when you just start to study psychology and you're like, you can't wait to have another hour to know what's more there there's there okay and and how else uh, people can ask a question and and look for for data and uh, and run studies and develop knowledge so i probably had a decent executive education reflecting back i was not able to <laughs> yeah. yes able to get a phd and then a job and you know and and like that do uh, well enough to hold my career for uh, uh, 20 years now. Uh, but I didn't realize that until I had the chance to do something which is intrinsically motivating. And I would say that because I think that often when you think that you cannot do something, you might be confusing that with, I am not interested. Okay, That's not the right thing mm. for me. You know, uh, as you were describing your own trajectory, it kind of reminds me of my personal education in India as well. Education was important, but it was not central. Like you, you were not, um, free of responsibility. And, you know, I mean, I remember in, in my house, the rule was, uh, whether you had board exams or you had a quiz, you still had to, um, make the, set the table, uh, clean up after your dinner. You had to do dishes. You had to sweep and mop if that was what your parents asked and then get to studying. So now what I find, um, you know, children, are, um, you know, parents are feeding their children because the kids are studying for a test. I mean, hand feeding a high schooler. I have, I had a client who did that. And so I find this, um, you know, everything else becomes a secondary because you somehow are getting good grades. Um, so, yeah, I think sounds like your executive function skills were very well put to test as well as uh, utilized by you because you were doing managing communal responsibilities. So uh, as we begin here, um, maybe you can set, set us off with a good definition of motivation, uh, because I think colloquial wisdom says motivation is getting things done, having this desire to get things done. Uh, but maybe that's missing something, right? Yeah, well, it, it, it's kind of accurate. Motivation is power. Okay? And it's the internal power that, uh, that you have, which... Uh, uh, gets you to uh, move from where you are to a different place. Okay. So so you have goals and we all have goals. Okay, We have goals related to our professional development, academic development, our health, our uh, relationship. And motivation is what gets you to pursue these goals, okay? what mm. gets you out of bed and into the gym shoes or uh, in front of your uh, study uh, materials. It's really the, the inner force, the inner power. You know what's so interesting about that? You're saying goal, having a goal is not enough. Having a goal is a starting point, but that need, needs to be propelled by actions, which is what motivations helps us get into. Correct. Yes, and you know, part of uh, being motivated is knowing how to set your goals, uh, mm. but it's definitely not enough. It's just the, you know, the, the first part, and, and motivation itself is, is the power to to get there. Okay, it's mm. how you you organize yourself and your life. And as I say that, I realize that it may sound like you are uh, 
by yourself, uh, uh, just uh, uh, getting yourself to, to do things. And, and it, that would be a, a limited view of motivation because motivation is often involved at designing the, the environment, designing the situation in which I can better achieve my goal. And if that sounds abstract, well, you exercise your motivation every time you set an alarm clock. Okay, uh, basically, you know that you are going to be tired uh, when you need to get up in the morning and that you will continue to sleep if you are in a, a cozy, dark room. Uh, but if there is a loud alarm, uh, that uh, is going to change your situation and likely you will uh, get up to, to do something about it. And so you, you are motivating yourself by you know, anticipating that there is a problem, changing something about the environment and uh, therefore being able to to stick to your goal. And I love that. I think your work uh, really highlights the role of environment. I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the, uh, I think as we, when we were discussing in pre, uh, pre-recording that um, there's a misnomer or colloquial wisdom says motivation is all about s- determination from within. And, but there are environmental factors that can actually act as safeguard, I mean, guardrails that can allow us to not keel over and forget our, our goals or our, get off tangent as we are pursuing goals. So maybe uh, you can uh, share with us for starters. um, We often hear intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So that once comes from within, once is motivated by incentives and external goals. Is that a good place to start? And how how would you describe the types of motivation that we all um, experience? So there is a lot uh, to unpack uh, in your question. Uh, first, I do want to emphasize that uh, motivation is about changing your environment, it's about changing your uh, circumstances. Uh, you started with an example of a person saying, I'm, I'm highly motivated. Well, while there are individual differences, some people might be in general more motivated than, than, than others, it's often a function of where you are and what is the thing that that you set to do. Uh, and so my example was that I was in a particular a highly motivated student in, in high school and then I discovered psychology in college and became super motivated. Okay, so it, it was about like the challenge, about the environment, about the people I was with and the, the new topics that I, I was introduced to. And I would very much reject that the idea that um, people say I'm, I'm just I'm not motivated. Well, you know, you you did not find the thing, or you did not design the environment that gets you to act. Uh, now, Can I quickly uh, share a story with you? You know, I was on a flight from uh, Atlanta to India, uh, which is a connected flight, uh, and uh, the India leg from I think Paris or whatever. Um, the entire time, uh, there was a leak above my seat. And my right shoulder kept getting completely drenched with this ice cold water. And so I called uh, the flight attendant, you know, and asked and requested a change of seat. The flight was packed. There was nothing they could do. Um, She was so stressed and stretched that she was not even empathic towards me. I was getting a little annoyed with her. Ultimately, there was nine hours of flight. I was just plotting like the whole time I plotted uh, uh, that I'm going to send an email to Delta I'm going to complain I'm going to be so mad and I'm going to tell them I'm going to w- ask for a refund then I landed and my family came to the gate to uh, uh, welcome me and I completely forgot and I completely lost my vengeance my plot my email and I just became unimportant and and so I, I see that you're you're talking about this environmental embedded cue. It was very frustrating, but it was not that important to me to actually pursue a complaint. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this story. Uh, you know, it, it probably would have been better for future uh, you know, people uh, on the flight if you complained. So if your anger uh, led to, <laughs> to action, but for your uh, well-being... You were in a different situation, and the anger was was gone and replaced with with love to your family, and and, and now you are a, a different person pursuing different goals, and very happy with with doing that. And so, uh, the, you know, we we all can 
identify situations where we just cannot do something and, and then other situations in which we are doing just fine and we need to uh, organize our lives so that we are importing the, the factors that help us to stay motivated to get things done to the areas where uh, we feel stuck we are unable to do it. And then you're asking about intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation is a very confusing concept in motivation science. Uh, and you know, I, I can get into the whole confusion. People say intrinsic motivation, they mean different things. Okay, Economists mean that we don't pay you. Uh, now, uh, some people mean that it's uh, from within as opposed to uh, from, from the outside. Uh, in uh, motivation science, intrinsic motivation is actually pursuing something as an end in itself. Okay? Is mm-hmm. the, the feeling that uh, as I'm doing it, I'm achieving my goal, that this feels right, that the, the activity and the goal that it serves are, are fused and we are intrinsically motivated when we are like doing something fun with our family, Okay, when we are pursuing our hobbies, uh, strolling the park, um, uh, reading a, a great uh, a book, uh, these experiences often feel like an end in itself. And then we are extrinsically motivated when we do something just for some long-term benefit. Okay? There is no immediate pleasure. I, um, I might go uh, uh, you know, and, and, and get a medical appointment because I care about my long-term health. There is no sense that this feels right and good as I'm doing it. And then you have everything that's in between. Okay, so you know your, your exercise, uh, morning exercise. Does this feel like an end in itself, or uh, more like something that you uh, pull through, uh, pull through it so that you have the the long term benefits? You you work. Okay, are you excited to do your job? Uh, are you one of these people that by the end of mm. the day? they had another 15 minutes to finish what they have started uh, or are you one of those people who just can't wait for work to be over so that you can do something else there, there, there is some uh, in between okay? you can be more or less intrinsically uh, motivated you can more or less enjoy the thing okay? or feel that it's right okay? I'm feeling that as you pursue the activity or you're achieving something, you are developing, you are learning, you are relaxing. Okay? Whatever it is that you are trying to achieve, it happens as you uh, pursue the action. You know, um, this is really, really helpful because I think um, uh, take examples of uh, clinicians, therapists, and uh, teachers, educators, parents who are tasked to help people. Uh, get on board doing things that the person you're working with doesn't want to or is struggling. So it's not necessarily even doesn't want to, but may not know how to. Um, it, it is such an important distinction that uh, it feels right, may not happen for them right away. Like, like let's say if I have reading difficulty and I'm a, uh, I have dyslexia and I'm working with a dyslexia tutor who's showing me some sound symbol relationship that I don't get, get it as a child, and I'm not going to enjoy it, uh, but then I look out to my teacher's support or uh, the the care that I get. So that seems to be a starting point that gets me to a place where I see my own success, and then I can say, ah, now it feels good, right? So Yes, and, and learning uh, has to be immediately gratifying, okay? and in particular for you know, young people, for, for kids. Uh, we basically explore a few ways of making learning uh, intrinsically uh, motivated. And the one way that I think might uh, surprise people is if we find that when we make math class a party, that is, we play music and bring colored pencils and and, and snacks, uh, then uh, kids were solving more math problems. They, they, They enjoy the experience more. Now, I think that people find it confusing because in a way we brought some external things to, to the experience. Mm-hmm. They brought music, okay? we brought uh, uh, colors. But the whole class, okay, the whole event of studying math 
became something that it's more fun, that it has more like surprising uh, elements uh, uh, that is uh, uh, unusual and, and interesting. And, and, and that can happen in the materials. Okay? It could be that you, you, you found the right way to teach or to learn because you found type of exercises that are interesting for you, that are fun, that you're curious to, uh, to solve. It could also be external. Okay, you, you do your homework or your tutor appointment in the most uh, pleasant experience. There is uh, uh, lots of uh, stimuli around you that make you feel in the zone, okay? make you feel like this mm-hmm. is right. The other way to think about how to bring intrinsic motivation to, to something that uh, might not feel right, uh, might not feel good, is to have people realize that sometimes it takes a bit of practice for something to feel good. Okay? And, mm-hmm. You know, if you haven't been running for a while and you you go on a jog, your body might hurt. Okay? But it's okay if you do this a couple of times because then you will enjoy running the way you may have enjoyed it back at the time. Uh, we looked at this in a, a study uh, with Caitlin Woolley, by the way, also the previous uh, study was uh, with her, uh, with uh, teaching people improv. Okay? And we worked with the Second City, which is an improvisation club here at the, um, at the city of Chicago. Uh, and basically, we invited people who were very new to it improvisation to feel uncomfortable okay we told them your goal when you do this exercise is to feel uncomfortable and what happened is that the discomfort that they would have experienced in any event because you, if you have not done improvisation before and you're just trying it it really pushes your your limits as a person okay you, you really feel awkward about your your body and, and what you say and how you you move if you think about this as the goal okay my immediate goal today is to feel uncomfortable then when you feel uncomfortable it's a sign that this is working okay and you might be able to persist a little bit until it actually feels more comfortable yes yeah this is what we found like when people had the immediate goal to feel uncomfortable they wanted to do it more so that eventually they felt more comfortable you know, that's, again, I think it's also another counterintuitive process. You know, we think uh, anything that, that challenges us should not challenge us, then we wouldn't grow. And so it's such a good, a good example that, that converting your discomfort into comfort requires you to engage with it, challenge yourself. And then once you are less confused or a process becomes more transparent, that automatically evaporates in a way. Um, so that's pretty neat as well. Um, you know, I think the the other question that I had um, uh, uh, that, you know, that there are um, two motivational process that you were describing, if I'm correct here, that, you know, outcome-focused motivation versus process-focused motivation. Um, can you maybe help our audience understand a little bit about these dimensions ha- um actualize themselves differently based on the circumstances uh, and there are ways to um, you have designed clever ways to measure that uh, how people um, you know how do you measure in experimental ways uh, how motivated people are yes and so we often think about motivation in terms of uh, uh, doing something and do it as, as quickly as possible but other times we think about it in terms of uh, applying yourself and your standards of performance, right? And so uh, it's important to to do something. It's also important to uh, uh, to do it right. Yes. And these are different dimensions of motivation. Uh, sometimes they are aligned, like the you know, the, the runner that uh, finishes the race uh, at first uh, uh, was obviously highly motivated to walk as quickly as possible, <laughs> literally here, <laughs> yes. uh, and also that defined high standard of performance. Uh, but uh, a student who's uh, finishing the, the, the exercise uh, very quickly might compromise the quality right and and so you might say well uh, for doing your homework the motivation to 
finish it as quickly as possible is not what we are looking for. Okay, we we want you to have high motivation to uh, apply yourself to uh, uh, have a, a high performance out of. And when we measure motivation, we really pay attention to the, these different uh, dimensions. Uh, um, you know, uh, one. Uh, uh, one way that uh, Rima Tuatuluri uh, and I looked at it uh, was looking at what happened when people were approaching the the end of the goal, when they were about to uh, to reach the the goal. Okay, if what's important is doing it right, uh, then they they spend more time on the problem. Okay, they they think about it more carefully. Okay, if what's important is to finish it as quickly as possible, uh, then they spend less time. Uh, what we actually found, we gave people a series of, of problems to, to solve, and what we found is that as they reached the end, they were taking shorter breaks between each two problems. Okay? So they were more eager to get this done by you know, taking shorter breaks but they actually, on the very last couple of problems, uh, spend more time getting it right because we know that the motivation to do something right, not to cut corner, increases uh, also as you're about to uh, uh, to reach your goal. I, I would say that in the context of uh, now education, we often need to pay attention to uh, the motivation to do it right much more than than speed. Okay, and and whether the person yes. uh, took breaks and whether they were uh, daydreaming uh, a bit, um, no, may, maybe because I am sometimes slow and and I have uh, uh, like two out of three kids that tend to take their time and be slow. I learned that uh, <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Okay, you you can take more time. Okay, but your uh, performance uh, standards should be high. Okay, you should try to to apply yourself, not to cut corners. You know, I think this so uh, uh, resounds with me that uh, take example of children doing homework. So if the parents promise them that, yeah, you can you know, play your video game for 30 minutes, you can see them whizzing through the homework while they have made a lot of mistakes. And And so I think, the parents find this difficult like how do i make them do it well and do it and then do it get it done as quickly as they want it done so they they have time to um to play the video game so i feel like the you know this um some of the interesting observations you have made maybe you can talk about that getting started is one aspect of motivation that operates differently versus the middle slump when we are in the middle of pursuing a goal we kind of like kind of lose our thunder get bored get tired and then we pick up the steam again as you just gave example uh, um of uh, seeing the end in sight people begin to pay, pay greater attention to the quality of outcome. So what was comforting about all that uh, is it's a human nature. So it was very comforting that it's not just me. Uh, but I also am very curious. Um, uh, it's, it's so difficult when it's not you that's involved in it. When you're in charge of other people's motivation, um, how can somebody, uh, so maybe I'm asking complicated, multi-layered question here, but if, can you talk us a little bit about these motivation um, landmarks influence the way we behave in the task completion differently? And how can uh, people who support children take um, make use of that understanding to influence the outcomes? So, you know, the, the simple answer is that the same way you motivate yourself, you can motivate others. Okay? The, the strategies are uh, very similar. Uh, if you know that you cannot stick to uh, a work task that uh, that is boring, that is uninspiring, that uh, that you deal with people that you don't appreciate, um, then uh, you should not expect your child to be able to work on a, a homework <laughs> yes. assignment that is boring for them, right? That uh, that you fail to. Uh, make into a, a process of discovery and a process of development and a process of uh, uh, reassuring the child's uh, strength. They just uh, uh, won't work. But beyond that, <laughs> very general. <laughs> <Such an> important. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about like the, you know, the, the middle 
problem, basically. So we have like beginning, middle, and end, and we see that people are more motivated at the beginning and the end uh, than in uh, uh, in the middle. One of the the cleverest uh, studies that uh, Rima Tortillery was back then my student and I uh, did, she's now faculty at Northwestern, uh, was uh, uh, giving people uh, a pair of scissors and a bunch of uh, shapes on a piece of paper, okay? And (laughs) what they need to do is just uh, uh, carefully cut these shapes, have many arrows uh, by by the order that uh, uh, we, we told them to do so. And so they are doing a great job on the, the first couple of uh, uh, shapes. The, the last one is also pretty good. They are literally cutting corners in the middle. Okay, that is the, the <laughs> shape in the middle had no corners. Okay? Uh, now, uh, the, if, if you think about it, we are excited when we start on something. We are excited when we are about to finish, if there is a clear end. Okay? Sometimes we are not excited because we don't see this ever ending. But if there is a finish line, we are again excited and, and willing to work. If the meal is very long, that feels uh, pointless. It, it's hard to uh, feel like we are making progress. Uh, we lose our motivation to do it and we lose our motivation to do it right. Now, when applying it to other people, their goal should probably have short middles. Okay. And of course, it depends on the child's uh, developmental stage, but uh, maybe one hour of homework uh, has a middle that is just too long. Okay, Maybe it needs to be broken to shorter units where you have uh, five minutes of beginning, five minutes of end, and, and barely a middle. Uh, in, you know, in our own life, there is a reason why most people don't set an annual exercise goal, right? Like you, you set a weekly or a daily exercise goal because if it's an annual goal, there's too much of a middle. Okay, <laughs> You're going to lose thunder, yes. Yeah, right? Saving for retirement is a challenge for, you know, uh, uh, most Americans because it, like, the middle is our life, right? <laughs> That's such a profound statement. You're right. I think think none of the saving is beneficial now. It's going to be beneficial in 40 years, but that's so long. (laughs) Yes. And so you try to make it into an annual saving goal, which is much better than a lifetime saving goal (laughs) because there is less of a middle. Try to make middle short for yourself or other people. Celebrate beginnings, celebrate ends. Often you do it just by breaking a goal into two sub goals, right? So, you know, homework is a good example because there is always homework. But how you structure this, how you think about like this goal can be on an hourly basis, a daily basis, weekly and so on. No, and that's a, another point that you also make in the book is that uh, that the middle is so psychologically strenuous and also <laughs> literally strenuous because it's been a while you have been at it. Um, you also talk about then progress monitoring. You know that I loved the, the that you were talking about. You know, working towards uh, accomplishing certain parts of your large sprawling task, going towards the fifty percent point you can have a different internal dialogue. And once you cross over the, f- the midline, you can have a different dialogue, how close you are. Can you talk a little bit about, this is a great strategy, I feel, uh, when uh, educators or parents are working with children, helping them achieve these goals, again, which just, just takes time. There are two ways to monitor progress. You can look back at what you have achieved or you can look ahead at what is uh, yet to achieve. And at any point, you can basically monitor progress in, in one way or another. Okay, like If uh, you, know, you are uh, pursuing a, a four-year college degree, you can say, I, I finished one year, I still have uh, three years to go. Okay, In a loyalty program, you can say, well, I... Now, already made half of the purchases to win a reward, or I still uh, need uh, uh, to, to make half of the purchases. So, for basically every goal, you can monitor that what we refer to as the glass half full, okay? mm. like how much progress have been achieved, or the glass half empty, how much progress is uh, yet to uh, uh, to be done. 
What I often see in education, and I, I don't have a representative sample, so it's just my observation, is that teachers tend to monitor progress in terms of uh, what's left to be done, in mm. terms of the glass half empty. Okay? This is where we are going. Okay? This is what's still missing. However, what we find in research is that for novices, for beginners, uh, up until the, the 50%, if if it's an all or nothing goal, it's usually more effective to look back and see that I've already done some. Okay, So instead of looking ahead and say, I still have to do uh, 90% of the work, look back and say, I already done. 10% of the work. The reason that this is often more effective is that when we look back, we learn that we can do it. Okay? When we think about what we accomplished in, in the past, that increases our confidence and therefore our commitment. And novices, beginners are uncommitted, okay? <laughs> which is why when they, they see what they have achieved, they say, well, I guess I can do it better than I expected. I guess uh, that this is working. Uh, once you are over the 50%, once you're an expert, uh, then highlighting what's missing is, is actually more effective. Uh, so to, to get your intuition, and we did many studies, uh, some with uh, Stacey Filkenstein, some with, with others on that, you know, giving people this feedback on what they've accomplished, what's yet to, to be done. If you take someone who's just starting, a child is just starting to, to learn how to play the piano, okay? I think that most people will have the intuition they should highlight what they did well and not their mistakes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? You should highlight their, their progress. So they, they know nothing. So at least praise the effort to show up. <laughs> exactly. Right? You showed up. Good for you. Uh, when you give feedback to uh, a pianist, an, an expert, uh, then you often tend to focus on what's missing. Okay? You did not quite convey the emotion in like this part you did not quite uh, uh, follow the the tempo uh, but whatever is is missing is more motivating for for that person and by the way also more informative because they got most of the the stuff uh, uh, right and we as fit the givers should be very attentive to focus on what has been accomplished when we are unsure about commitment and what is missing uh, once commitment is established and the, the person is fully there. So fascinating. You know, I can give an example. Um, so I, um, I live next to a, a public park and, and the, the round around the public park is 2.7 miles. And my goal is to walk five miles a day. And so I, um, of course, it is two miles away. I mean, not even two miles, maybe one and a half miles away from my house. So if I, if I walk my dog in my neighborhood, I can get a mile. And, and it just feels so good to have that jump start uh, when I come to the park and begin my... Uh, so it doesn't feel like I'm starting and I have 2.7 miles only because I just walking the dog itself, it just gives me a little boost. And then I feel like, whoa, if I do two rounds, it's like additional bonus. So I'm playing head games with myself, but I, I can literally see that my psycho psychological attitude changes if I show up at already having walked my dog because my Fitbit is showing me. Um, and the second point that, you know, which you point out in the book, but I also have seen this trick so work that pe marketing people really get this. They get motivations far more than people in education. Well, uh, the Smoothie King near us gives us a uh, the, the card with two things punched already, and they want you to reach 10. So actually, they want us to reach eight. But it feels like, oh, my God, I have already achieved. And you talk a lot about this in the book. So I'm wondering in, in the context of the teaching, if the teachers can give actually 10% of the grade after the first class saying you did in a great introduction class. So here, you now have only 90 points left to earn in this class will be so much easier for the kids. <laughs> I love this example. Yes, I don't know if the teacher is doing this, but NEA, illusory progress, uh, which is what marketing programs, loyalty programs often do, uh, is uh, very effective at getting people to persist. Okay, You've been 
already doing that. Okay, and and, and so uh, keep going. Okay, don't lose your streak. Okay, you're you're already in it, uh, which is a fun way to kind of trick ourselves to you know, to think that we are already doing something, so that we uh, will feel uh, uh, more committed. Uh, no, on, on the other hand, uh, uh, some teachers have the, the wrong intuition of uh, uh, starting with negative feedback. How about I, you know, I'll give you the first test that is very hard and you will see how much you need to learn in this class. And I see that and I'm like, oh, no, what are you doing? <laughs> right? Like that. No, like, instead of uh, giving something that's like easy that allows for fast progress, like letting kids realize that they can do it before I mean, small wins yeah uh, you start by uh, uh, giving negative feedback about everything that you still don't know and you lose somebody's motivation by the way it's, it's an, one reason why approach goals also work better than avoidance uh, goals uh, yeah tell us a little bit the definition of these two goals approach versus avoidance Yes, so, so approach avoidance are the do goals. Okay? It's, uh, you know, to, to like, do my homework, uh, exercise, uh, eat uh, uh, green vegetables, and so on. Uh, do not uh, goals are uh, avoidance goals, are everything that I should not do. Okay, maybe I should not eat uh, red meat, I should uh, uh, not uh, stay late in, in, in bed, uh, I should not. Uh, daydream, I should uh, not, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, like <laughs> watch too much television. Right? <laughs> Eat the whole <laughs> cake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Now, th- there are a few problems with avoidance uh, uh, growth. Okay. Uh, first, how do you know that you are successful? Well, you ask yourself, am I doing it? And by that, you bring this to mind. So it's like <laughs> easy to show this without suppression. Okay, you try not to think about your ex. How do you know that you're successful at not thinking about your ex? You ask yourself, "Am I thinking about my ex?" Well, yes. Right. Uh, so isn't that uh, the white bear problem? <laughs> exactly, it's the white yeah, it's Dan Wagner's uh, white bear problem. But it's also like you ask yourself, like, "Am I successful cutting down on the uh, on the red meat or on the TV?" And now you're thinking about the foods and activities that you should not be doing. (laughs) With kids, we see that, uh, also with adults, but even more with with kids, with adolescents, that avoidance calls elicit reactance. So we all sometimes want to do something just because we are not allowed to do it. And with adolescents, that is spiking. Uh, There is a really nice uh, uh, line of studies by uh, uh, Chris Bryan where he used psychological reactants to get kids to eat less junk food. And basically what he told adolescents is that marketers want them to eat junk food. Marketers design junk food to make them addictive. They make money from you eating junk food. Now, the adolescent that reads that is reacting, okay? Like, if they want me to do it, then I don't want to do it. Yes. <laughs> and they were eating less junk food so that they are not going to uh, uh, play into uh, this uh, marketing ploy. Uh, we see that avoidance goals often are the, the goals that uh, that kids reject. Okay? The kids say, I they, I don't want to do it. I don't want you to tell me what not to do. Uh, it's much better if you recommend what I should uh, uh, do. And then the last thing is that avoidance goals are less intrinsically motivated. It, it's just not very exciting to cut down on your TV. <laughs> okay? Exactly. It's much, right? It's much more exciting to walk your dog, okay? which would mean that you are cutting down on TV because you're outside walking your dog. So true. So, so one quick question about that. So, you know, I see these kinds of mental hacks. I'm, I'm doing a little fake out with myself, you know, instead of telling myself, um, because then it becomes uh, avoidance, don't watch TV. I'm saying, just go out, take your dog out. This is such a good self-discovery process. With children, when they don't have this metacognitive uh, understanding about, how, they don't think about their thinking, they may not even know, can I influence by telling them how to convert an avoidance goal into a um, you know, approach goal? 
Uh, would that work in a similar way like you were talking about um, in other places, how um, whatever works for us works for our children as well? Yes. Well, what I meant is that whatever we apply on ourselves, we can apply for others. Okay. So yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. Set approach goals for myself. I should also realize that I should set approach goals for uh, my son, who's ten year old. But you're asking a a really important question, which is uh, how much we can teach children motivation. How much we can teach them to uh, uh, to motivate themselves. There is very little data on uh, uh, that. Uh, We know that uh, self-control takes time to develop. Uh, It develops with age. So clearly uh, a 10-year-old has better self-control than a 5-year-old and uh, uh, less uh, uh, self-control and and probably general ability to motivate themselves than a 15-year-old. There is a general increase, but we know that it's still something that is being uh, uh, developed uh, into the uh, early uh, 20s. And I uh, know about a few studies that uh, look into uh, uh, teaching kids motivation, measuring motivation, see uh, that it predicts good uh, uh, life outcome. I believe that is is possible and that we uh, never try that on a large scale. Yeah, I mean, this is your, I know you have lots of projects in the works, uh, but this is something very interesting. I find that, uh, uh, you know, uh, conventional wisdom, uh, for example, <laughs> I, I te- my mother, who is 80 years old, she lives with us and, and uh, you know, one of the, um, we make fun of it now, but she, she used to... Um, kind of use this tactic on uh, three three of us we uh, my older brother younger brother and myself and she say um you know make your bed people will say you are so amazing at making bed <laughs> and, and then she'll say eat your broccoli i mean we didn't have broccoli in india but karela which is the worst vegetable you can ever eat and she said eat it people will think you're the best karela eater and so i found that my my brother and, and this is a not folklore of the house now, but when he was little, he would he would eat the vegetable and say to mom, "Would people say now I'm a great eater of this vegetable?" And she said, "Yes." <laughs> so it did work, you know. Like she used that as an influence that people's perception of your capability as a motivator, and that worked. <laughs> so I wonder, yes. as we end, do you have any thoughts about a social regulation of a motivation? You know, do we? find uh, as an act of social cooperation, we tend to engage better with things even against our own will. I love that you brought this story because there are really uh, four parts uh, to motivation. Uh, uh, There is uh, setting a goal. There is striving toward this goal. We discussed monitoring progress. There is juggling goals, okay? We discuss self-control, okay? There, there, there are things that I want to do and there are things that I uh, should do. And uh, in order to do these other things, I should not do the, the previous uh, uh, things on, on the list. Uh, and then the fourth element is social support, okay? There is the, the role of others and what do they say and what do they think and how do they help. And basically, most of the things that, we do that are meaningful, that are big, we do with other people, okay, whether it's success at work, whether it's like for you like producing this uh, a podcast, for me doing my research, it's always with other people, starting a family is with other people, we work as a, <laughs> That's so as true. a neighborhood, right? <laughs> we work as a neighborhood. Uh, and so uh, leveraging uh, social support is, is critical. If you are the only person who knows about your goal and if no one else is there to help you, change that. Okay, uh, find the people that you can share what you're working on with, and that you uh, anticipate will be uh, supportive. And maybe they just want you to be successful, and that's already huge support. Maybe they can actually help. Okay, maybe you can pull the rope uh, together. Uh, even if not, just them being there and watching you and, and hearing from you, you know, I, I would be the you know, one of many people that remind uh, uh, our listeners that we are social animals. And so we 
we have to have the group's uh, support. We are not uh, loners. And to stay motivated, those around you need to know and to help. Well, brilliant. This has been such a fascinating and engaging conversation. I really appreciate uh, uh, you being so generous with us. As we conclude, I often ask my guests if they have any uh, recommendations of books that you have found fascinating, intriguing, informative, and that our readers can, I mean, listeners can benefit from reading. So the the field of motivation is actually exploding. There is a uh, so much work. Uh, there is, uh, no Angela Duckworth's uh, uh, great book, uh, um, Carol Dweck's Mindset, Wendy Wood uh, wrote on habit, Katie Milkman wrote on uh, how to change. And there is uh, uh, just uh, an explosion of uh, uh, ideas in uh, each of these Lovely. books illustrate uh, some important lessons. And, and then don't forget to uh, read fiction. Okay? There are so many uh, amazing uh, uh, books that, uh, that you could enjoy. Um, last thing about books, don't ever read a book because you have to. Okay? <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any Israeli, when you were a child, is there any Israeli author that influenced you as a child in fiction? Yeah, I, I like to I, I like to go back and and think. I bet they do. I actually recently this she's not Israeli, she's Italian. But I recently I was watching uh, my brilliant friend, and that reminded me when I read these books by uh, Elena Ferrante the first time, and how much I uh, resonated with them because she she writes about women's uh, friendship and about. Um, now, growing up in, in a place that is uh, that is poor, that is uh, non-academic, and then uh, how uh, the society, the people around you influence your uh, pursuit, including your professional and, and academic uh, uh, pursuit. So I would say that influenced me a lot where, uh, when it uh, came out, but it still wasn't quite my childhood. It was later than that. Wow, that's lovely. Well... Thank you for sharing that. I think uh, uh, it's been a fabulous conversation. So, uh, all right, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you again uh, to Eilid, uh, Dr. Eilat Fishbach for being my guest. As you can see, these are uh, incredibly important conversations we are having with uh, highly knowledgeable, uh, incredibly qualified and passionate experts who have managed their own motivation so well uh, to inspire us to find our own um, uh, a kind of switch that help us. Uh, maybe switch is not a good analogy, but <laughs> keep the pedal uh, to the metal. And so lastly, as we close out, um, definitely subscribe to uh, Full Prefrontal using your favorite listening app. Share the episode with as many people as you can and reach out to us if you have any questions. So once again, thank you, um, uh, Dr. Fishbach, for joining us and I'll see you again next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.